I really only know one way of doing things. So I better get my act together and learn a bunch of different lenses quickly. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 46, and today's guest is Devin Pike, who's currently the president of Bagalini. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Brandstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. I'm joined today by Devin Pike. Devin is a global leader in the fashion and retail industry with a focus on developing successful customer strategies and launching and growing multi-channel consumer brands. She's currently president of Bagalini, a digital-first handbag brand focused on empowering and enhancing the lives of modern women. She also acts as an advisor to companies including Athena Technology, Athena Consumer, both SPACs, and we're going to talk about a SPAC uh, a bit later, and Piccolina, a children's lifestyle brand. Prior to joining Bagalini, Devin was Chief Merchandising Officer and Head of International Sales at Gap. Early in her career, Devin also held the roles of President of Givenchy North America, CEO for De Beers Diamond Jewelers, and SVP at both Ralph Lauren and Juicy Couture, which is where I met uh, Devin. She's responsible for launching several new business ventures, including Givenchy Retail, Juicy Couture Digital, and the Rugby by Ralph Lauren brand. Devin started her career as a buyer at Filene's Department Stores and a director at Federated Department Stores. Devin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. It's great to see you again. Same here. Uh, that's quite an accomplished career and lots of different brands. Uh, can't wait to dig into that. And um, it has been a long time <laughs> since we we have seen each other. Um, it was back uh, when you were yes. at Juicy and trying to take that business to its own e-commerce website, if I recall. That's exactly right. We got it. <laughs> that was a fun ride. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was a good project. I enjoyed uh, getting to know yeah. you then, and and to and actually some of the people from your team uh, at that moment in time, I'm still in touch with either on LinkedIn or Facebook, and um, you know, so that's you know more than ten years ago, or or you know probably ten years. Ago. I know. We start these uh, shows trying to, you know, give the listeners and, and one interesting thing about the show is we've got some people that are senior in their careers, kind of like you and I. Um, and then we've also got some folks that are early in their their careers, early stage, you know, startup kinds of people and, and just getting uh, set up in their career. And one of the things we try to do is give, you know, folks three kind of key things that they can take back either to their personal lives um, or their business. Um, and, you know, we'll summarize some of that at the end of the show. Show. But give us a quick uh, perspective where you grew up, kind of perhaps how uh, where you are today was foreshadowed in your uh, your early years. I actually moved around quite a bit as a child. So my father was a lifer at Procter and Gamble. He worked at Procter and Gamble for forty seven years. Um, so the consumer space was sort of always part of my world. Um, and we started off. I was born in the South in Tennessee where my father opened the first Pringles plant. Pretty quickly, a couple of years later, 
moved on to another project where he was a line manager in New Orleans um, and then moved up to Toronto for about five years when he moved into human resources and got further into uh, the people side of things. Five or so years later, moved to uh, Cincinnati, where the general headquarters are for Procter & Gamble. Um, and I think you know, it's interesting you talk about foreshadowing. I actually think the fact that I sort of lived in a lot of different places that were one, not New York City and sort of the hub of the fashion world, and two, different from each other, right? The South is very different culturally from Toronto, and all of that is quite different from the Midwest. I think it actually gave me a pretty good perspective on consumers. But the truth is, I didn't set out to have a career in fashion or retail. I, I actually was completely not educated about this side of the business or, or what that could be like. And I grew up uh, wanting to write, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and spent a lot of my early years sort of focused on writing and what type of career I could build with storytelling. Um, and that is also kind of interesting to me in the end, because, you know, as a as a merchant, on one hand, I mean, I picked storytelling back up as a hobby, um, literally writing. But, you know, building product can also really be a story. And the idea of crafting brands and uh, communicating with your customer has been sort of a pretty live thing for me throughout my whole career. I'd say those two probably lent a lot to what I ended up doing with my career. Well, I want to just build on the storytelling thing because it's a, a theme that, or a question that I would have asked, you know, a little bit later. Um, and we'll go through yeah. some of the companies that you've been through. But, you know, you, you've had some varied businesses that you've worked for. Definitely mm -hmm. some that were on the higher end, diamond companies and and then, you know, Ralph Lauren. <laughs> right. And then, and then you know, something that's more mass like a gap, maybe even considered juicy, more mass. And private label. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I've absolutely done mass. How does the storytelling change uh, depending upon the kind of business that you're working in? I would back up a little bit and say, you're absolutely right. A lot of very different experiences. And that was quite intentional, actually, because I, I felt that in order to sort of get the right experience to be an effective leader in this industry, for me, at least, it was important to have a bunch of different experiences, both functionally, right? Because I grew up as a merchant, but obviously I've done a lot of things that are not just merchandising. I think the other piece of it was, you know, getting to know a lot of different customers. But when you say, how does the story change? I think one thing that stays consistent about the story is getting in there and learning about what is your relationship with your customer and what value do you provide for your customer? And then that becomes the story you tell. And that is the same thing, I think, whether you're talking about mass product, right, where the story is a lot about timeliness and value. And when you're talking about luxury goods, where the story is more around quality, craftsmanship, and scarcity. But it has to do, I think, with really first getting in there and being a learner and understanding what, what is the value that can become the story. Interesting. You know, it's funny, these shows I, I set out, you know, to have a, a path of how I want to go through the discussions. Yeah. But we're hitting we're hitting some things, you know, right now that are, you know, fresh in my mind. So I want to stay on that. Oh. You know, the, the storytelling okay. is, is great. You also brought up something that a, a recent guest, uh, Kathy Halligan on the show, you know, talked a lot about. She also had a has had a very varied 
career. And she she talked a lot about intentional change of roles so that she could add to and and round out her experience set. So you just touched on that. Maybe add a little color to that if you could. Anyway, so no, it's funny. I kind of stumbled onto that. Like I said, I, I found the industry by accident. I was a literature major at Brown, graduating during a recession, um, and happened to stumble on uh, first an internship at Filene's department stores. And I really had such a great experience uh, working with some people I really looked up to. And I really, you know, I, I really fell in love with the industry because it was quite entrepreneurial. And here I was sort of a girl from the Midwest, you know, very humble upbringing. So the idea of sort of being able to build a business business with somebody else's capital, right? I wasn't going to go out and raise money and start something myself at that point. It was a lot of fun and really appealing and um, satisfying to be so connected to culture and people. And I loved the pace. So all those things really appealed. And then I worked at the same department store, finally as department stores, as you said, for uh, almost seven years, actually. Um, And thinking, like I said earlier, my father worked for 47 years for one company. I sort of thought, yeah, I'm just going to get in the lane with Filene's and this will be my career. And eventually I will run Filene's, right? Or, you know, move up the line in May company. Um, and I had this experience about five or six years in with sort of the first coming, I'll say, of the internet. And the way that really affected the department store industry at the time was it really impacted talent. Um, And so earlier on, um, you know, we had some great people who suddenly had new opportunities to to move into the digital side of things and new experiences were open to them. And we lost a lot of great talent and we needed to start doing things differently. So for example, people who are really capable of managing on a selling floor and having the aesthetic to merchandise a selling floor and sort of do all of those things, that became a higher commodity and, and we needed to think about breaking jobs apart. And the people I work for who I all, I still admire so many of them. I mean, I worked for some of the greats actually. It was hard to change, right? Cause they had one way of doing things. And I sort of picked my head up and recognized well, I've worked at the same company for almost seven years. I really only know one way of doing things. So I better get my act together and learn a bunch of different lenses quickly. If I'm not, you know, if I, I thought if I was going to be successful at the time, I remember thinking, gosh, I was very old. <laughs> I was about to be 30. And, oh my uh, God. <laughs> so old. Um, and so I, I thought about a couple of ways of doing that. And I landed on going back to business school as sort of the most effective and um, sort of efficient ways of getting a bunch of different lenses and learning different approaches. While I was there, I stumbled on a concept called the balanced scorecard. And the balanced scorecard really is another way of thinking about companies based on a portfolio strategy. So the idea was an accounting principle that looked at a company holistically, right? Different um, metrics, but also different soft uh, elements that they would evaluate a company on. So it became a holistic scorecard. And I thought, well, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about managing and building a career. And so I started to put together sort of a, a portfolio of experiences or Uh, I thought I needed to have working at different size companies, different structures of companies with different customers uh, in different functions so that ultimately I would have, you know, a little bit, no enough to be credible when it came time to lead people in those different roles and different experiences. And honestly, Mark, the truth of the matter is I did it at the time 
you know, again, earlier in my career was quite ambitious and thought, gosh, I really want to lead a public company. I had a, I had a very specific goal <laughs> to accomplish with this experience I was building. Um, and as I got closer and closer to that, I realized, gosh, there's so many more things I can do with this breadth of experience, particularly now that, you know, as you and I have both seen, the industry has been changing so much. So this diverse set of skills has been really instrumental in building teams that sort of can weather change and be empathetic to each other and really understand each other, um, even more so than, you know, I, I've actually never run a public company and I, I don't think I will. <laughs> Uh, but it's been a really amazing experience um, and has really served me well. Is it true your first role then moving out of the department store side was into the Ralph Lauren business? Yes, that's right. right? So culturally, you know, uh, I could have my own perception of pretty different culture, I would imagine, going from, <laughs> you know, the federated, the world of federated into the world of Ralph. Yes, definitely a different culture. And, and how did you navigate that? Oh, moving into that culture. Well, I mean, I had a huge appreciation for it. So I'll say, first of all, I, I, I knew it a little bit. I've been an associate buyer for Ralph Lauren and a buyer in the collections business back in my Filene's days. I was versed in the culture already. Um, I had a real appreciation for it. I mean, I think Ralph Lauren is, is quite a genius. Um, I think, you know, he builds something that's truly amazing and visionary has been able to sustain it over a very long period of time. So my goal in going there was, you know, up until then, I had been you know, a buyer at Filene's for many, many years. My role at Federated Department Stores was actually quite different. I was on the merchandising side. So I was more on the product building side, particularly men's private label product, and not as customer facing. In going to Ralph, what I thought was, gosh, you know, I need to understand, you know, both of my prior roles had offered me a lot of flexibility to build a business, right? As a buyer for a department store, you can just change out when you see trends happening, you can chase them, right? As fast as you're open to buy, can move. And, you know, on the merchandising side, obviously, particularly in mass, you know, I had multiple labels to work with. So if modern things were on the, on the rise up, I could work with my Alfani brand. If it was more of a classic moment, I could go back to um, the club business. So there was more flexibility and I needed to understand what it is like to manage from a brand perspective first, right? Be a brand ambassador first. And that was a very different way of doing things. Um, and, you know, when I had looked around at the time, felt that Ralph was probably the, the best man that there was uh, domestically, was very excited to go and take that, that role. I went first actually to do a business development role, uh, which was more on the strategy side, leveraging, you know, what I had learned in my prior experience, primarily at the business school. And then, you know, had the, the great opportunity to run into Ralph in the hallway one day and start to get to know him over a period of time. And about, you know, a month later, he invited me to come to a meeting that about a brand he was sort of concepting in his head. And, and that's how I actually got <laughs> my first big break, which was um, launching and running the rugby business for him. That sounds like a Friends episode, Devin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in theory, it kind of was. I mean, I could see that. I'm sitting here listening to you, and and I'm thinking of Jennifer Aniston in the elevator where where Ralph Lauren, you know, gets on. <laughs> <laughs> well, she has much better hair than me. <laughs> no, but seriously, I, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a really 
lucky accident, honestly, that I kept running into him in the hall. And but I, I think the learning there is again, it goes back to that theme of storytelling, right, Mark? Because you know, each time I saw him, I had a little bit more to tell him about who I was. So by the time we got, you know, a month in, I had said, Here I am, I'm Devin. I'm working on the strategy side for your license businesses. I'm Devin on the buying side. I'm Devin. I've worked on the product development side. I'm Devin. I've worked in denim before. I've worked with a younger customer. And sure enough, the idea he was thinking about was targeting the brand towards a younger customer and required sort of the first vertical initiative in the company, vertical being both developing product and then being in charge of selling it and, and concepting the business to the customer. I was really fortunate, actually, that I had the chance to to talk to him about that and and sort of repeat the story in a way that he could remember it. Uh, Any digital opportunity there or was uh, your first digital opportunity really when you got to Juicy? (laughs) Let's say my first real digital experience was Juicy, for sure. Um, I had exposure there, though. And again, I mean, that was one of the great things about being part of Ralph Lauren, because they had, you know, he had his hands in many different you know, early stage innovative businesses. So there was a lot of exposure in that company. We built the rugby business, but at the time, Ralph Lauren was partnering with MSNBC on their digital business. And so contractually, they really just had the whole Ralph Lauren brand. And we felt strongly rugby was a separate label so it shouldn't have gone underneath the Polar Ralph Lauren site. It needed to be its own site because it was a different customer that we were targeting. So we so we waited out that contract and didn't launch that business um, online until about four years after we launched the first store. And in doing so, again, I was much more of an ambassador for the brand and worked alongside the digital team. But you know, there was a very expert digital group that built that business. But I was lucky enough to learn from them and then use that later when I was invited to run the, the digital business for Juicy. And and so, you know, leaving a business like Ralph, um, you know, oftentimes, and I think I referenced, you know, Kathy Halligan before, you know, her her comments yeah. to me about, you know, a career was, you know, go towards something, don't go away from something. And yeah. so in your case, you know, tell me about going towards Juicy and what that was going to do for you in your mind. Yeah, no, no. And I, I think that's a really great way to, to phrase it. So when I moved over to Juicy, it was a, a couple opportunities. Like I said, I built, you know, the rugby business, which was retail specific lifestyle brand for Ralph. And we had opened, I think we had opened 12 stores at the time. Juicy was a much larger retail business, but also founder run still. And Liz Claiborne had just invested in them and they had just hired their first CEO, Edgar Huber. Um, so I came on at a time where there was quite a bit of investment going into the expansion of the Juicy brand, primarily on the retail side. And I came in to run retail. And for me, right to the point you just made, so a much larger retail business, but still brand focused with a very specific customer and building on a founder vision who were still part of the business. So all felt very connected. And then I also knew a couple of different things. One, um, it was then my first opportunity also running the off-price business, so the outlet business, which was again, quite a large and very quickly growing business for Juicy, very profitable. And also I had known from my conversations that they were bringing, Juicy was bringing the digital business back in house. So I was very interested actually in taking on the merchandising side of digital with my retail position. Um, And the other thing I knew from 
you know, my talks with Juicy is one of the places they were planning to invest is the international side of the business. They wanted to build a travel retail business. And I had not worked on the international side before. So again, so the things I was going for were one, I could see the opportunity. <laughs> Two, larger retail business and more expansive, including off price, more expansive, including digital merchandising, and then also the opportunity to start to educate myself on running an international business. I didn't know that later I would move over and run the, the whole digital initiative. <laughs> that was not in the game plan, but it, it was, again, another really happy accident for me. Yeah, I love the way you've been, you know, very thoughtful, you know, about your career and the roles that you have taken. I think that's, you know, good, good point for people that are listening, you know, that you can be thoughtful. In some cases, things just happen. Um, but in your case, you know, it certainly seems like you have, you know, uh, set a, a target and gone after it. So that that's great. Congratulations. Do you have a direct to consumer business? I enjoy connecting with guests on this podcast because it reminds me what I love to do strategic and tactical consulting for businesses like yours. If you'd like to speak with me about your business and see how you can add a fresh set of eyes to your team, contact me at mark at detailsinteractive.com. Now let's get back to the marketing playbook. So then you, you get a call that I can imagine most women are going to want not to be sexist by any stretch, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. And somebody calls you about a role at De Beers. Tell us about that. Yes, that's right. No, that was great. Francois Delage, actually, another big mentor of mine uh, was that phone call. I, I, I thought of it a little differently going from um, $60 track suits to $8,000 <laughs> average ticket diamonds. That was pretty fun. Uh, but again, it went back to you know this game plan I had for myself, Mark. I had not had a, a true luxury experience. So the opportunity when I got the call from Francois really appealed and really fit. I will say it was the first time I, I felt like I left Juicy Digital before I was completely done. But the opportunity was so good to go to De Beers uh, and work with Francois. So there were a few different things about it that really appealed to me. One, like I said, said, working with a true luxury consumer, which was a, a very different cadence of business. And I was lucky because De Beers, what they were looking for is somebody who had fashion experience and building out sort of a lifestyle retail culture, which I had then done twice, once with rugby and once with Juicy, and bringing that experience into the diamond business because the fastest trending portion of the fine jewelry business at that time was... Um, what they would call more the fashion jewelry business, um, call it diamonds and fine jewelry that retail between a thousand to fifteen thousand dollars, um, either for self purchase or gifting. The pace of that business was very different than the traditional businesses in, in particularly diamonds, which are engagement, right? So that's one very specific sales cycle. Um, and then high jewelry, which is really fine, 50,000 50, and up type purchases, primarily in the millions of dollars. Those two have a very different cadence in a fashion day in, day out business that's transacting in the store. Um, so came in to build a culture around that. Uh, and it was just a, a tremendous opportunity to work with a different product category, totally different customer, again, totally different company structure, because uh, that was a joint venture between De Beers and LVMH. Um, so two, two you know, really remarkable brands. And then the other thing that was really neat, and I know you and I have talked about this before, is it was the moment that 
fine jewelry starting to open up online in digital. And I had just been working on the juicy digital business. And it was really exciting to think about being on the forefront of the fine jewelry business in the digital space as well, especially with a name that was so credible, right? De Beers. Sure. It was probably the first business that you were in where you didn't run a friends and family event. <laughs> <laughs> that may be true. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's funny you, you talk about um, you know high end and and diamonds and high end jewelry. I remember I very early on I had a friend on the IT side of the Blue Nile business, and he was you know explaining yeah. to me what what Blue Nile was, and and I was so wrong because I remember saying to him, "Diamonds online, people are going to mm -hmm. make that kind of a of a blind purchase, you know, you know like like that and do it online." And and obviously, yeah. Um, you know, that's become a, a big way for people to certainly research, uh, find jewelry, and then actually to make, uh, you know, purchases. So, and then, you know, at, at a moment sometime uh, into the future, you, uh, you go to Gap, which is, you know, now, um, you know, kind of circling perhaps back to, you know, some of the similar types of brands that you were before, very different than fine jewelry. Explain your role at the Gap. It was in Gap brand. Yes, I joined Gap Brand. I had two roles at Gap actually. I started a Gap um, in 2015, and I was the head of international. And so I ran all the businesses outside of the U.S., which were the direct business for Japan, the direct business for Europe, and then the franchise business, sort of rest of globe. Um, and then we also had a venture going in China uh, that was really fun, although didn't didn't report to me, but it was so exciting because at the time China was on a fast clip. Uh, and I did the international role for about uh, 10 months. And again, that was just a fascinating, fascinating role for a couple of different reasons. One, the combination of all the different cultures and how those businesses could work together, right? I had, um, you know, businesses that had a, a really sort of much more fine appreciation for the Gap brand outside the US, right? And domestically at the time, the Gap business was very much a promotional discount type business. But outside of the U.S. and Japan and, and, and Paris, even in France, it was quite a refined approach to the business. Um, and so we were able to bring a sort of a different level to the brand and then share that back to the domestic, to the domestic business, which was exciting. At the time, it was a really big uh, learning experience about, you know, everyone was talking about what does it mean to be global? That was very topical at the time. And the learning, I'd say that, came through loud and clear was to be global means to be hyper local um, and you have to get a really in and understand your customer very well and the customer is not the same from region to region so the customer in japan at the time did not have exactly the same appreciation uh, for body conscious clothing that the customer in the u.s did for example. Uh, and so we were missing as a gap brand a whole opportunity for a wider silhouette that you know, only came through by getting on the ground in Japan and learning with the team in Japan where the opportunities were. Same thing, you know, our Europe business, we were um, reimagining what Gap could be. And we had gone back to the vintage approach from a, a global standpoint of blue jeans. But the truth of the matter is when you're in Europe, best-selling collar in denim is black. And we had edited all the black jeans out of the assortment. So, you know, spending time in Europe on the floor with the customer realizing, you know, every second customer is asking for a black pair of jeans and we have none, 
<laughs> we were able to add things quickly back to the assortment that really mattered to these customers. Um, and so as a result, about 10 months later with all these assortment refinements in my regions, um, I ended up going over and running global merchandising and sort of taking that more um, localized approach to the global merchandising piece. So two different roles, international and then merchandising. And that frankly, Mark, I gotta tell you was sort of the dream job. I don't know about you, but I grew up, Gap was my band, right? All through middle school and high school. Um, so to you know, come full circle and be the head of merchandising for Gap, I would say kind of the pinnacle for me. I felt very lucky. <laughs> Great brands that you've worked in, and we'll come up uh, and, and talk about your current one in a bit. There's always uh, things that are hot in our space. There's there's two that are out there. I, I'd love to get your your point of view. Um, one is about yeah. marketplaces, and you know the building of marketplaces for brands. What do you, when you know if somebody starts talking about that with you? What, what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean I, that's a new horizon. I think it's very exciting, frankly. It unlocks a lot of opportunities on both sides of the fence, right? Because I think what I found is, you know, even in the online business, when you approach, you know, a, a channel partner, right? Everyone's still constrained based on the partner's vision of your brand, as well as their open to buy constraints. Um, and so the marketplace opportunity, in my opinion, is excellent because one, it releases the pressure of open to buy and starts to open up the universe of of what can be shared with a brand's loyal customers, right? And then the second thing for the brand side, I think is just the access to meeting and, and understanding the potential of different customer types in different environments, right? So the idea that, you know, I could put my entire assortment up online with, you know, the target customer today or with the Walmart customer today via marketplaces, and they may each choose very different products uh, or respond to different things based on the community that exists. So I think it's, a, you know, it's an opportunity to learn a lot about brands too, right? I mean, I'm going to access many more customers through those channels and I'll be able to just independently in my own e-commerce universe. Yeah, just yesterday, Bed Bath and Beyond, you know, made a big announcement about their foray mm -hmm. into uh, marketplace and and it really shot their stock up. But you know, it just seemingly you know, yeah. and you 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 talk about it from a merchant's perspective, expanding the open to buy. Many of the people that I talk to about this don't quite think about it that way in the expansion of open to buy, but in bringing more products, widening the customer assortment, not taking responsibility for inventory, not having to ship product uh, directly to the customer because somebody else is shipping it on their behalf. Right, it's a very efficient model for the wholesale, absolutely. for the retailer rather. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> And then, you know, one of the other, you know, big things right now is, is you know, kind of this uh, resale, circular economy, sustainability. Um, have you, you know, thought about any of that for businesses that either, you know, I, I, we'll talk about the SPAC in a bit, but, you know, is, is that something that's on your radar as well? Of course. <laughs> I think it's on everyone's radar in a couple of different ways, Mark, honestly. I think, you know, as a consumer, I find it very interesting um, the accessibility, but it's really changing the game, right? So if we think about it, one of the biggest issues I think with our industry is the amount of waste we create, right? You know, we're, we're part of an industry where ultimately we know we're going to make some mistakes. So we give ourselves the ability to overbuy things or present 
more than we need of things. And ultimately there's just a, a lot of waste, right? There's lots of duplication as people compete with each other. I think one systems that allow us to be more refined in our approach to eliminate waste are really important. And then I think this idea of having a secondary market to continue to extend the life of some of these products is really important, right? <laughs> and starts to take things beyond the world of trend, but to accessibility. I think it's also really changing sort of the message of brands, right? Because there are brands now where they were completely inaccessible to certain customers. And now in the secondary market, there's much more access to designer brands, a product that used to be very scarce before. Um, and so I think it's going to push all of us to a place where all products need to really provide much more functionality and innovation and value to customers um, and can't just trade on their brand name. I, I think it'll be a very healthy inclusion in our market. Okay, good. So marketplaces and circular economy. Good comments. Thank you. Let's talk about quickly, what is a SPAC? <laughs> a SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company. Yes, that's exciting. So I've been part of two, uh, both based on my direct-to-customer experience. So Isabel Friedheim, who I think very highly of, she's an entrepreneur and a, you know, Quite a force, I'm just going to say, <laughs> to be reckoned with. But um, she had the idea as SPACs were getting more and more popular, she looked around and realized there were no all-female SPACs. So she put together a team of women who are great business people and just happen to be women and went after the SPAC market. And I guess, I guess we all started down that path together. It was about a year ago at this time. And we've done uh, sort of one in the technology space, and now we're working on a consumer as well. Okay. Well, good luck with uh, that. That's interesting. I'm going to have to do some more research on on SPACs and, and how yeah. they play into our market. Uh, <laughs> and now Bagalini, as I think I mentioned, I did not know the brand. My wife absolutely knew the brand, and she's like, wow, I love it. So tell us about it. Yeah. So that's when I first got the call about Bagalini, I had actually never heard of it either, <laughs> uh, but I'm so glad that I did. It's a really exciting business, Mark. So Bagalini is a 20, now six-year-old company. Um, our founders were two global travelers. Um, they were flight attendants, actually, and partners. And from tra their travels around the globe for many, many years, you know, gleaned a lot of great insights about what makes for an amazing bag. Um, and if you think about it, travel is sort of the most extreme use case for a bag, right? I mean, if it is efficient enough and durable enough to stay with you through your travels, then it, generally speaking, is an excellent bag for every day as well. The whole brand story, I, I think, is really terrific because these two women were very enterprising and scrappy in the way they built the business. And that's really part of the spirit of the brand now. And the idea was really to have bags and have a lot of very intuitive organization for women. Um, and so what that's translated into is, you know, first the business took hold really in the alternatives travel space. So we were sort of the bag you took along with you on your travels, so your everyday bag for your global travels. And then we moved into the more uh, pure travel space. But the lion's share of the handbag business, it's funny, I, again, handbags is a new experience for me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, is in everyday bags. And it's quite a joyful purchase uh, for women to go 
and find a bag that really meets their needs. It's very interesting, you know, culturally, several years ago, I mean, the idea about a handbag was more about an it bag that defined you, right? By carrying around this bag, you affiliated with a brand and that defined who you were. Bagging is not that. Bagging is the bag that you carry because you've defined yourself. Um, and it really is about giving you sort of a, a very, like an extra tool to carry around product with you. There's a lot of intuitive pocketing. Every bag is either antibacterial or machine washable or both. So it's a very hands-free way of living. I really also appreciate the last element, which is it's a value brand, right? So it provides customers a product that's really worth more than they pay for it. And it's accessible to a large group of customers. So we can actually support women to live their best life across any price point. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, stores and uh, your own stores as well as wholesale? So actually we have a couple partners that we do business with, but we do not own our own stores. They're licensed deals, uh, which I think was actually really smart in the way the business was set up. So it gives a lot of flexibility. 70% of our business today, we trade online. So strong digital business. Well, that, that's great. So. Very strong digital business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's great to see brands that, um, you know, are focused on utility, uh, you know, as opposed to, you know, status. That's right. Great stuff. Um, really appreciate uh, your time. So when I end these shows, I have seven questions that I like to ask folks. Okay. Kind of quick and dirty first or second thing come into your mind. You ready? Okay. All right. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? Uh, Apple. The favorite app on your phone? <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a hard one. My text app, I'd say. That's how I okay. keep it with my daughter. <laughs> the last website other than Amazon and Bagalini that you shopped from? Shopbop. <laughs> okay. Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. I have realized I, I would really like to be a better artist than I am because I have to talk through all my ideas. And we just um, hired a new head of design, Alicia Skian, who's such a talented artist, is able to bring her ideas to life through art. I really admire that skill. All right. Sketching. A charitable organization that you're passionate about. Yeah. Dress for Success, actually. Um, and also... Um, there's a suicide hotline, both set up by a, a classmate of mine from Brown, Nancy Loveland. And I think you know both of those concepts, one, bringing a community and product to help women get back on their feet or to the next level in life is ingenious. Um, and then I think this idea of the, the text hotline, having an outlet for people to get support very quickly when they need it in the moment, I mean, so critical in today's um, time. There's another organization called One Love, which Yardley Love was a lacrosse player. And unfortunately she was the victim of um, relationship abuse and, and unfortunately lost her life to it. Uh, but as a result, her friends and family have set up a foundation that are really promoting education around healthy relationships, which if you think about it is something that no one teaches you when you're growing up, that's not a format in school, right? Plenty of sex ed conversation, but no education on healthy relationships. Um, so I really support this organization and what they're trying to, to do um, and how that can build community. It's, a, it's run by another friend of mine, Katie Hood. Thank you for sharing that. If you had one superpower, mm -hmm. what would it be? <laughs> I'd like to fly. No. <laughs> And last, other than family, what's your most prized possession? Oh my gosh. 
I mean, what's more important than family? Nothing. Maybe that puppy that's next to you now. <laughs> no, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say community. I live in a really amazing community that brings a lot of richness to my life. So very supportive. Everybody's there for each other. It's, it's a terrific thing. And uh, maybe lastly now, um, where can people reach out to you on social media, Devin? <laughs> well, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. So it's probably the best. Okay. Sounds good. Hey, really, thank you for doing this. It was nice to catch up with you. Uh, hope we can stay Me in too. touch and um, you know, see how uh, things are progressing for you down the road at Bagalini. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Devin Pike for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, listen to your customers. That sounds simple, but there's so many brands that do not have the tools and processes in place to listen to what they're telling you. Devin spoke about the international business where blue denim was not nearly as popular as black denim, but the product availability did not match the need. They heard the customers tell them that they wanted black, so the business changed their product mix. Number two, this one seems to come up pretty often. Changing your job is sometimes hard, but as you develop your career, pushing for change is important. Devin spoke about how she's moved towards roles that have helped round out her skill sets and experiences. Push yourself out of your comfort zone. And number three, I like the comment about a balanced scorecard. And although that can be whatever you make it, do look at your business holistically and not just those few metrics that you've tended to use in the past. What you measure is what you get. So add to your standard financial measures, include operational metrics, customer engagement and employee engagement metrics, so you have a more complete view of your performance. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details.